I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Howard Brody, Professor of Family Medicine and Director of the Institute for the Medical Humanities at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Dr. Brody has written a perspective article about the ethics of rationing and waste avoidance in healthcare. Dr. Brody, about two years ago, you wrote a perspective article in which you framed the issue of cost control in terms of physicians' ethical responsibilities. And this is a framework that you flesh out more fully in your current article. What was the response to that initial reframing in the medical community? Well, well Stephen, first of all, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here uh, chatting with you. And the um, response uh, that I received uh, was really quite positive. Uh, I think that uh, there's been a disconnect in many people's minds between the economics of medicine and medical professionalism and uh, the idea that uh, uh, the economics of medicine are sort of like real world and there's no point talking about ethics or professionalism because it just is the way it is. And, and I think people are actually kind of refreshed when we say, you know, uh, professionalism does have something to do with this, and there are ways that we can take more control as professionals over our lives and our systems of care. And when we can do something, it doesn't mean that in any way, shape, or form that we have total control or ought to, uh, but when we can do something and it really is better for the patient and it makes us feel better about our professional commitment, uh, then it's a good thing to do and we should uh, think about it. One way that you proposed uh, that be accomplished was that each specialty society identify waste in its own field and create a top five list of commonly ordered but expensive diagnostic tests or treatments that don't provide meaningful benefit to at least a group of patients. And that concept has now been embraced by the ABIM Foundation in its Choosing Wisely campaign. And a number of specialty societies are doing just what you proposed. How did the idea get from your proposal to this major initiative? Well, I think it's important to note that this whole question of the uh, over-treatment of patients, over-diagnosis of patients has been out there for a good long time. And a lot of people have been working in this area uh, for, for decades. And um, so what I had to contribute at the very last stage of it, if you will, is uh, probably overall pretty minimal. But it appears that uh, there was already an activity going on in the National Physicians Alliance uh, with the AB ABIM Foundation's help. Uh, that was called their Good Stewardship Project, and they were the first to get three primary care specialty societies to come up with lists of uh, treatments and tests that really ought to be dispensed with because they provide no patient benefit. Uh, so there were activities already ongoing, and my perspective, I think, perhaps contributed just a couple things. Uh, that The idea of the top five list uh, as a way of saying, you know, this is a way to focus our energy. If we could, uh, there's so many things here we might have trouble agreeing on, but if we could just pick the top five money waster, no patient benefit things in each specialty area, that would be a start. We could, we could sort of sink our teeth into that. And then, as you said a minute ago, the relationship between doing that and fulfilling our professional responsibilities. So that seemed to help in terms of framing uh, the activities that the ABIM was already starting to get off the ground along with, as I said, National Physicians Alliance. So it seems I was fortunate in being able to offer a little extra idea at, at just the right time when, and when some of these activities were just getting off the ground. So now, physicians, patients, policymakers, what's the response been to the campaign? It's been really, really interesting. Uh, the uh, 
uh, Choosing Wisely initiative announced their list of, I think, 45 uh, potential uh, treatments, uh, and I really like the way they framed it. Uh, and um, in terms of saying, these are treatments for which the patient and the physician should sit down and talk very seriously about should this patient have this test or this treatment. It's not, we won't give it to you, insurance shouldn't pay for it. It's not, we're going to say no. Uh, it's that this should be talked about. This should be discussed. And um, the response in the media when this came out, I think, was quite fascinating. I've had a, the luxury of talking with a couple people at the ABIM, and they've they followed pretty closely the media uh, uh, stories on their uh, list. And they were, for the vast majority of instances, quite positive. Uh, so it looks as if the general public is moving in a direction where they're just more ready to hear that uh, these treatments are potentially bad for you. They don't help you. They could hurt you. Uh, they waste money, but the, the issue is more that the individual patient harm that is possible with some of these things is really should count even more than the question of how much it costs. And the public is, is willing to hear this and willing to engage uh, in efforts to, um, uh, to uh, see what can be done to reduce our waste in these areas. And the, the other thing I think that's extremely positive about the Choosing Wisely initiative was the involvement of consumer groups. And Consumer Reports has already started to come up with some handouts that I think are going to be extremely helpful in uh, doctors and patients sitting down and, and working uh, to avoid things that don't help, their, help the patient and have the patient really understand better why some of these things are not helpful. So we have a beginning. There are 45 items. Uh, what implementation mechanisms exist to bring about change now? Well, I think the, the interesting aspect of this is the answer is essentially zero. Uh, these are so far purely voluntary efforts, and I think it's really interesting to say what are the next steps going to be uh, because uh, this is a very, very uh, going to be a very, very difficult culture shift, uh, both for patients and for physicians. We are so ingrained in the more is better mentality, uh, and so uh, ingrained with the idea that if you pay for more, more for your health care, you must be getting more for your buck. Um, that uh, it's really going to be tough on both the medical side and the public side uh, to turn this around. So I think we're going to have to be. Um, uh, trying a number of different things. And uh, again, what I'm kind of hopeful about, and maybe this is my naivete, is that if there's a way that we could really encourage the kind of in-depth conversation between doctor and patient about what makes a medical test or a medical treatment good for you, what makes a medical test or medical treatment bad for you, and how can you look at a potential intervention with the idea that I'm going to weigh the good and the bad and I'm going to make an informed decision based on my own values as a patient, whether I want this or not, with my physician's guidance and input, uh, we are changing the world of medicine in two different ways that are both very positive. One is we have the opportunity to say no to a whole lot of useless stuff that is potentially harmful and in the process save a bunch of money. But perhaps in a way even more important is we're trying to develop a way of having a conversation between doctor and patient that all too often in the past we've just never had that conversation. And for a long time we never had that conversation because uh, we said, um, well, uh, the doctor just should order the patient and say you should do this and the patient should not uh, question the doctor. 
Well, that went out uh, hopefully uh, 20 or 30 years ago. and We know now that patients have rights and, and patients need to be respected. So now the usual excuse is, well, the doctor's just too darn busy. And so I think one of the challenges for various institutions, as well as for professional societies, is how do we make sure there's time and make sure there's space in the doctor-patient uh, relationship for those conversations to occur? And how do we provide the kinds of aids for that conversation, like the handouts that Consumer Reports is coming up with, or alternatively video uh, decision guides, which are becoming more and more available for some of the, the more difficult decisions. Uh, how do we uh, facilitate that conversation, I think, is going to be one of our big uh, challenges for implementation. To get to the magnitude of the problem, in your current perspective article, you cite the estimate that at least 30% of U.S. healthcare expenditures go to non-beneficial interventions. How solid is that estimate? Well, I think that's a really great question, uh, and it appears uh, that there's becoming a kind of a consensus around something like the 30% figure, uh, and there's almost so much consensus that there's a part of me that's worried that if everybody agrees with it, it's got to be wrong. But it basically comes from two different places. It sort of meets in the middle coming from both ends. Coming from one end, we have all the Dartmouth Atlas and similar population studies, which look at how do you compare the parts of the country where they do the least amount of tests and treatments per person with the parts of the country where they do the most per person? And if you look to see how much, and, and they get yet the same outcomes, that is, it's critically important to see that the Dartmouth people have confirmed that generally the people who spend less, they still have just as good outcomes and sometimes better outcomes than the regions of the country that spend more. And you could do a calculation based on those, uh, those comparisons among different regions of the country, and you could say if the people in the, in the highest cost parts of the country were to reduce their use down to that equal to the low use parts of the country, how much would we save? And the estimate turns out to be about 30%. If you come from the other end and you just look at a series of cases, uh, so for example, you look at a recent study of uh, coronary stents, and you look to see, uh, you take some good guidelines as to when coronary stents are medically indicated, you get a bunch of experts, you sit down with the patient's charts, and you go through the charts and you say, how often did the case actually meet guideline, and how often was this really medically indicated? You come up with figures, again, somewhere around 30, 35, 40, 25 percent of those cases were probably medically not indicated, that that patient ideally should not have had a stent or whatever the intervention is. So uh, whether you look at it from the point of view of reviewing individual case records for appropriateness by expert opinion, or whether you look at it from the population perspective, you end up somewhere in the range of 30%. Now, is it going to be easy uh, to get all that 30% back? Absolutely not. So, but the point is, is that medical care is so expensive in the United States, and the rate of, of increase is so rapid every year, that if we could only get our hands on only 10 or 15% uh, of that 30%, you're still doing an awful lot in terms of absolute dollars that could ideally be reinvested in real help for real patients. In implementing these changes, you argue that we must have a robust appeals process so that if a physician believes that a patient would benefit from one of these interventions, even if the average patient wouldn't, that physician has, has somewhere to go. What, what does that, that process look like in your view? Well, when I wrote the perspectives, I was thinking of a typical kind of situation with an insurer 
where an insurer says, uh, we won't cover this, and the physician then has to call, pick up the phone and call somebody and say, you know, I, I really wish you'd reconsider because this patient really needs this, and here's why, and I really think it ought to be covered. And um, I do think that there, you could look at uh, the kind of things that happen in insurance coverage where there's a board, there's a medical reviewer, there's a board uh, for controversial decisions, and there's, there's a, a process where you can add, the individual physician can activate that process. And ideally, there'd also be grounds for the patient to activate that process. Uh, but uh, again, I would, if I was rewriting the perspective today, and this is following a meeting uh, that I attended last uh, week in Boston called Avoiding Avoidable Care, where a lot of the leaders of this uh, movement were there, including people from a board of internal medicine and so on, um, who have been, really been, uh, been uh, providing a lot of leadership in this whole area. Uh, what I really liked out of that meeting, and that I would probably stress more if I were re rewriting the perspectives uh, piece today, would be the importance of that conversation between doctor and patient, and how the, the main appeals process really should be between doctor and patient in terms of a conversation where if the doctor says, thinks, if the doctor thinks uh, that this uh, particular thing is not helpful to the patient, the doctor explains why. Uh, if the doctor, on the other hand, thinks that even though the guidelines say it's not useful, this patient might be the exception to the rule, the doctor would say why. And then the patient uh, would, would put in their, their values and their thoughts and either say, well, gosh, you know, it makes perfect sense. I don't think I really need this after you've explained it. Or alternatively, wait a minute, I really think I could benefit from this. Uh, why shouldn't I have it? And again, I, I think the idea that somehow if we've identified a, a useless treatment or a, a non-beneficial treatment, we've been able to figure out this particular therapy or this particular test is not beneficial for this group of patients. Should our goal be to drive the rate of that um, procedure immediately to zero, which is almost impossible and involves you know, really jerking people around a lot, or is the, the goal to start to reduce it, which means that if you have these conversations with patients and initially 80% of the patients want it, but 20% say no, and then maybe after a couple years, uh, it's going to be more like 60-40, and then after a while it's 50-50. If we could get a handle on having the uh, ways to talk about this so that we make a gradual reduction, I think that's ultimately to the good and uh, bringing people on board and having them see this as a good process uh, is going to be more important than how quickly we can uh, save, save money. In identifying these interventions, you suggest that we start by eliminating those for which we have the most indisputable evidence that there's no benefit. What proportion of the 30% do you think that makes up? Uh, I don't know. And uh, I, I'm not sure we have really good information on that subject. And uh, part of what I, I had hoped to accomplish by calling attention to that idea of, of uh, going in that direction is whether it's, it's only 2 or 3% of the 30%, whether it's 10%, whether it's 15%, it's a place to start. It's where we should begin because um, there is so much potential, it appears there's so much potential savings there that we could make do with what we save for a while uh, before we got into the more controversial areas where I hope the research will be done that will clarify the more controversial areas, but inevitably that's going to take a while. So uh, what are some examples? Well, 
uh, it turns out that if you looked at the first list that came out of the National Physicians Alliance good stewardship effort, uh, the biggest single money savings that they came up with in primary care was something that uh, that internal medicine came up with. And they, what they came up with is everybody who's put on a statin today ought to be put on a generic rather than a brand-name statin. And they found that just making that change across the board would save an estimated $5.5 billion a year in the U.S. Now, there, so there's an example. Is there any... Uh, good, solid evidence that one statin is better than another statin if you need a statin, the answer essentially is across the board, no, there's no good evidence. So a brand name uh, over a generic has no advantage. I believe that the evidence is just about as good for arthroscopic surgery for um, osteoarthritis of the knee, where there have now been several uh, well-designed randomized trials that have shown no benefit. Uh, to arthroscopic surgery for this particular procedure, which I understand is still a relatively common, commonly performed procedure, uh, but it, it's been shown in several studies not to have benefit. And so I would think that would be another one we could look at as, as the evidence being pretty solid. And again, I think everything on the list of 45 that, that the Choosing Wisely campaign came out with is, are pretty good examples of about as rock-solid evidence as we're going to get. For nothing are we going to have 100% certainty, so we absolutely have to uh, put, put out of our minds the idea that we could have perfect certainty on any of these questions. You acknowledge that there are political hurdles to cutting waste. What about cultural hurdles? The expectation of Americans that we should have access to every available intervention, especially the newest technologies. How can we address that obstacle? Yeah, I think uh, that, that that is clearly a big deal. Uh, and I think we address it by coming at it in a couple of different ways. If uh, uh, the average patient... Uh, who thinks that way because that's, of course, the way we've all been conditioned to think. And all we have to do is turn on the evening news and listen to the health report on the evening news, and it's going to reinforce those beliefs that some new technology was just discovered yesterday, and this new technology is the greatest breakthrough, and, of course, everybody wants it. And, uh, you know, the big medical center where it's offered is, of course, the very best place to go to get your care, et cetera. So we have infomercials everywhere we turn for this cultural belief. Um, if two things happen, we can get it started. If the patient is reading their Consumer Reports magazine or, or whatever else they, they use to inform themselves about what's, a, what's good and what's bad in the world, and they read in this magazine uh, several times now going about the dangers of overtreatment, the dangers of overdiagnosis, and how uh, there's too much medical care out there that simply provides no benefit, and how patient organizations are trying to reduce this for the good of the patient. And then they go to see their doctor, and the doctor says, you know, um, we've in the past uh, always ordered these tests when you come in for your annual checkup. Well, these tests are among those things they've identified now as not being good for you, and I'm suggesting this year we don't do those tests. Uh, when, the, when the patient hears it both from respected consumer-driven uh, sources and also from a trusted physician, then I think we have a very, very high likelihood that people are going to accept the message. But it's going to take a while. There's no question about it. In a related perspective article, Greg Block argues that eliminating waste is just a temporary solution, even if it does succeed, and that we are ultimately going to have to ration beneficial care. How do you respond to that argument? 
Well, there's a number of responses to that argument. Uh, the first thing, uh, and, and let me say that uh, that. Uh, that Greg Block's piece, I think, is excellent, and, and I would strongly commend it, as well as I would commend his earlier work that I've enjoyed reading. But um, in terms of the, uh, the the political debate about rationing, I think one of the worst things that the politicalization of, of what he calls the R word uh, is has done to us is we now have the idea that if we just left everything alone, of course we don't have rationing of health care, but if my opponent takes power whoever my opponent may be, uh, then down the road, of course, we'll have rationing of health care, and that would be terrible. And, and that's garbage because the fact is we're rationing care right now uh, all over the place. We have been rationing care for a long time, and we ration care in a cruel and unfair fashion. So the Institute of Medicine um, identified a while ago uh, that an estimated 18,000 people a year in America die because they don't have health insurance. And uh, other estimates, it's as high as 44,000 people a year. So uh, we already ration care. We already condemn people to death because of the way we, we uh, distribute access to health care in the United States. Some people can get it and some can't. They have, some people have a rationing card known as an insurance policy, and other people who work for employers who, and do the same work and, and work just as hard uh, and are just as deserving, uh, they don't have that rationing card and they can't get health care unless they pay out of pocket, which mostly they can't afford. So we're already engaged in rationing and we're not talking about whether to ration, we're talking about what kind of rationing. And the second thing uh, that I would take a little uh, issue with, with, with what uh, Dr. Block says is that he uh, anticipates that we're not going to be able to bend the cost curve at all so that anything we did by eliminating waste in terms of non-beneficial care would be nothing but a temporary stopgap, and very quickly we'd have to go back to dealing with the inexorable rise in the cost of medical care. Well, unfortunately, uh, if 30% of total health care is not providing any benefit, that 30% is not just a one-time thing. That 30% is part of the trajectory of raising health care costs because we keep on developing new drugs, we keep on developing new laboratory tests, we keep on developing new procedures that are very expensive and that provide very, very little uh, benefit and for some populations, which we're working harder to figure out which they are, essentially provide no benefit. So part of the new technological development is uh, stuff that can't be shown to provide benefit. And right now we're very, very loosey-goosey about proving or demanding proof that something provides benefit before we'll let it be distributed. So if we can turn things around where people are demanding evidence of real benefit before we're willing to use a therapy, then down the road we're going to really change the cost curve. The other thing that I think, the final thing I'll mention with uh, Dr. Block's uh, piece is that he, uh, nowhere in that article did I see the word harm. I, d I heard all about how certain things uh, might be beneficial and if we would have to ration in the future, we would take away that benefit from patients. And, and every medical intervention has some chance of benefit, but it also has a chance of harm. And I think he fails to mention that some of these low beneficial things that he's worried about we deprive people of, they're low benefit, but they're very, very high risk of harm in some cases. And the patient, him or herself, would want to be freed from that risk of harm, and if talked to in the right way by the physician, would probably elect to forego the small degree of benefit in order to avoid the very significant risk of harm. 
so I think the the harm benefit ratio is is a piece of it that I'm afraid Dr. Block didn't address as as, as much as he might have. Uh, although, of course, in a perspective speech, you can only do so much. So it, I don't disagree with his basic point that rationing should not be vilified. Rationing should be discussed frankly. Uh, but I slightly disagree with his point that uh, there is just not enough to be saved if we really would focus on non-beneficial care, and uh, inevitably we would have to immediately start cutting into muscle instead of just cutting out fat. I think that's uh, that's a little more pessimistic uh, assessment than, than what I would offer. Thank you, Dr. Brody.